Hey everybody, welcome back to the Vivid Word Podcast. Today is a very special episode for a couple of reasons. Uh, Firstly, it is the conclusion of a conversation that we've been having for uh, just about a month now, about four episodes, and that conversation has been all about dialogue. We've been looking at this core aspect of the complicated thing that we call human communication and looking at what happens when people talk to each other, when we take abstract thoughts, form it into words, and then send those ideas and words out to other people, and they have to interpret our ideas and words and form their own abstract thoughts. Two people talking can change the world. So we've been looking at personal connection and politics. We've been looking at journalism and reporting. We've been looking at telling our own personal stories to each other. We've been exploring writing. We've touched on podcasting. And we've, we've really been trying to take a peek under every little nook, cranny, and rock in the whole area of human communication. I don't think there's any way we could have possibly covered every single thing in just four episodes, but uh, we've been taking a crack at it. So this last episode explores my personal favorite. You can tell because I get really excited about talking about it. We look at fictional dialogue and how to write two people talking to each other and how to use the art of dialogue in the art of storytelling. And over the course of this conversation, we talk about art and what it means. We define story, or we try to. Then we get into the weeds talking about pacing of a story and how dialogue can affect pacing and how it counts as beats and what that means for the pacing of a story uh, in a broader sense. So all of that leads to actually the longest episode that we have done on the podcast so far. But not to worry, there are some musical interludes to help break this thing up into little bite-sized pieces, and I hope you enjoy those additions. If you're interested in any of the music on the show, or you'd like to follow along with some show notes, you can do that at our website, that's vividwordmedia.com. And I'm not going to spend any more time introing this episode, I'm just going to let you guys get into it. Hope you enjoy. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Everyone's comfortable now, right? Yes. <laughs> you said cool, 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 and I was going to call you Abed, but I couldn't remember his name. Oh. <laughs> I said yes, and I was going to say the name, and then I... Anyway. Abed Nadir. Yeah. May he rest in peace when he eventually goes. <laughs> Would you like to give us a recap of the sure. dialogue series? Yeah. Um. So... So far, we have talked about dialogue and talking as a whole, kind of a broad overview, and then we moved into more specific conversation. We talked about dialogue in kind of existential, religious, philosophical conversations. We also talked about social media on that episode, kind of dealt with some of the ethics and questions we have around debate on uh, social platforms, and then... The next episode was about nonfiction dialogue. We talked a lot about how that looks different kind of across different subgenres within nonfiction and why dialogue is still important in nonfiction, even though it's not really what comes to mind right off the bat when you think of dialogue in writing. Yeah. And then now we're finally getting to 
fiction dialogue, which is my personal favorite. <laughs> um, yeah. So we've kind of been through that giant mind map that I made at the beginning of the series. We haven't dived deep into each of those categories, but we have definitely touched on a lot yeah. of things. And I'm excited to be talking about story in this episode. So going forward, like we're breaking these things up into like breaking up the whole field of communication into different categories, different things that we think are vital to what it means to be humans and to communicate with each other. And so for this first one, we talk about dialogue. And then as we go through the little mini series, we're talking about the different applications of communication. So talking about like existential applications, uh, philosophical applications, business applications, nonfiction communication applications, and then fiction applications. So as we do that, we're going to be talking a lot about story. At least every single time we get to the fiction right. <laughs> portion. <laughs> so, and in some, in some capacity, the other uh, portions as well. Mm-hmm. But fiction is really where it shines. Yeah, yeah. So this is the first episode that we're talking about fiction dialogue. There's going to be some story background that I'm going to have to lay the groundwork for. <laughs> and then we're going to talk around before we totally dive into dialogue. Okay. So I've got three bullets here that are kind of like these statements that uh, kind of pivot off of each other. All right. The first one is that character is dialogue. Hmm. And then dialogue is mini story. And story is change through conflict. Hmm. So I kind of wanted to work backwards through those. And then we're going to eventually get to like a, a good definition and even better than a definition, a good like application of what it means to write fiction dialogue, how we might be able to do it better, what are the things we look out for, and what are the pieces of fiction dialogue that like affect us as readers. As as readers, yeah. Yeah. So we're starting with story is changed through conflict. Story is changed through conflict. Yeah. Perfect. So uh, in school, there's this one class, it was like narrative development. Yeah. And one of the the main through ways that like tied all the lessons of the class together all of our weeks together we were told like up front that at the end we were going to try to formulate a definition of story it's not gonna be the first assignment it's gonna be the last assignment but like through this process you knew that's where you were going mm -hmm. and so it proved to be like kind of (laughs) hard like a a little difficult to like nail down a definition of story uh we were assigned a bunch of different books to read like three or four throughout the course and each of those books had slightly different definitions of story and then by the end we end up like each individually synthesizing our own definition okay. i don't remember mine <laughs> <laughs> i should have looked it up before we started this episode but i do remember the first part of it okay uh, it was that's that, good enough. Yeah, I mean, it was that story is change. I think yeah. it was like it was like a, a little little paragraph, but the, like the first sentence of it was that story is change. So at its base, it's like how did one thing go from one state of being to another state of being? Right. And if nothing changed, then 
I mean, nothing happened. <laughs> nothing, right. Like, then you're just like listing. <laughs> you don't have a story. You don't have a story. You're just listing events. Yeah. And the, the difference between like a plot and a narrative and a story, uh, even though they're all kind of mixed together in our heads, it's worth the time to kind of parse those mm-hmm. out. So the definition that I have here, it's less of a definition, more of a prompt uh, that we can have a response to is that story is change through conflict. So that th- that change doesn't necessarily have to reflect or resolve that conflict. The change could also be less like concrete and more of a self revelation or like yeah. a recognition that there will be no change. Hmm. But that recognition in and of itself is a change of perspective. Right. So these aren't like when we start talking about story, these aren't hard and fast rules. Right. These are guide rails. I don't know. Landmarks. Yeah. To help us just frame how we're discussing Mm -hmm. this topic, because it is pretty arbitrary. It's kind of like what you were saying about language in the first episode. We use words that we can understand to try to talk about something that is actually kind of hard to understand. So, yes, it's okay if it's not all clear cut. Yes, exactly. But I think it's helpful to link the idea of story to a broader definition of art and what art is. Because when we talk about story, we're not talking about it in a vacuum that's like isolated from the rest of human experience. We're talking like contextually within the realm of human beings telling each other stories. Right. Uh, Storytelling is a uniquely human thing mm. which is interesting because like communication isn't a uniquely human thing right but storytelling, but storytelling as a as a form is i would also say that art is a uniquely human thing where like you know a lot of creatures they you know have to communicate with each other a lot of creatures even like political structures power struggles are not unique to human beings right but art is even, you know, okay, science and engineering, you know, not unique to humans, but mm-hmm. art is. Yeah. And that's worth recognizing that whatever art is, it's a thing that humans participate <laughs> right. in. Uh, it has to be linked to that. And then if stories are a form of art, then we can't analyze those in a vacuum. We have to understand that they are linked to what it means to be a human being. Yeah. So. There's this definition of art that I came across a few weeks ago that has just been kind of ringing around in my head, and I really appreciate it. It's that art is applied aesthetics. And then it has a two-part definition, because you have to define aesthetics if you're saying that art is applied aesthetics. So aesthetics is the senses that we use to experience the phenomenon of meaning in the world and so it's like this vision of the world where most things are chaotic random and unexplainable but every once in a while that randomness comes together and we see we experience the phenomenon of meaning in our random chaotic world okay and the senses that we use whether it's like seeing that something is beautiful or like symmetrical and you interpret that as like wow there's a meaning there in all this random stuff right (laughs) in this you know you're walking through a forest which is just unbridled chaos of life and growth but then you see like flowers and you see birds and like you recognize 
there's some sort of I hear and that's pleasant and there's something I see that's pleasant and that the fact that there's a pleasantness to this is a form of meaning out, out of, of this chaos. Yeah, out of this yeah. chaos. So story is And so so art, art is applied aesthetics. It's someone intentionally taking those senses that we use to experience the phenomenon of meaning and adding intentionality to that and drawing your attention to uh, a place where meaning is or at least the meaning that they are experiencing. And you can paint in all different colors like you can show like a like a spider and how it's almost like the opposite we we perceive meaning in it but it's like almost unsettling meaning like there's something about the bulbousness and the sharpness of legs and like it has too many eyes and there's just something about it that like we feel like it's kind of wrong <laughs> yeah but it's also in the wrongness there's meaning right so aesthetics don't necessarily have to be all pleasant yeah all exactly time. yeah so it, yeah, yeah by drawing attention to the wrongness it makes you also aware of something that's right and you can juxtapose those things and so that's a pretty broad definition of art but it is helpfully limiting meaning that some things are left out of that art which is basically anything can be in that circle of art if its purpose is to show meaning uh, but it also leaves room for a definition of anti-art which is when someone is intentionally showing the chaos around the phenomenon of meaning and trying to show that something is meaningless or show the feeling of meaninglessness that is still human expression, but it's human expression in the form of anti-art and not art, according to this definition, which I personally think is helpful. Uh, it doesn't mean like you can't have something postmodern in a museum, but it's like the whole movement of postmodernism is kind of showing the, it's like a negative of art. Right. It's so showing where art would be. <laughs> but because it's still revealing something mm. to help us make meaning of reality, could you argue with, from the definition that postmodern art is art because it's helping us make meaning, even if it's like a negative, like you said? Mm -hmm. I think it could go either way. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it, yeah. it could go either way. When we talk about terms like this, even words in general, like helpful and unhelpful, like how helpful is this word? Right. I think is a better than like, oh, that's 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 right, wrong, right or yeah. wrong. And for me, this is a pretty helpful definition. And then when you start going back and forth between art and anti-art, the I think the purpose is more important than the actual definition. Like the, the purpose is what defines the art itself. So anyway, that's that's the bedrock. When we say that story is a type of art, the art of story for the sake of this conversation, that's my bedrock definition of what art is. And that helps us to see within that what, when we talk about story, what the purpose of story is. A story or poetry or music or whatever, but we're talking about story right now. We're going to get to dialogue, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. Because dialogue is just another thing within this broader thing of story. Right.
So uh, good stories help us to experience the phenomenon of meaning. And there's a lot of elements of story. Give, give me a few elements of story. Like if you were to think of, oh, what's the textbook story elements? Um, We've got character. Characters, setting. I guess you could, yeah. I mean, plot, which we haven't really defined the differences between those, but... Yeah, character, um, setting, plot, conflict, yeah. resolution. Dialogue, conflict, resolution. Anything big I'm missing? No, I, I would even say that dialogue isn't like an essential part That's of true. the story. Yeah. Where it's really, if you have character, setting... Change. Character, setting, conflict, and resolution. Yeah. Because change is implicit in right. conflict and resolution. You don't even need plot, necessarily. Mm-hmm. If you tell someone something with a character a setting even if it's like a one sentence sort of thing with a character a setting a conflict and a resolution you've got a story you've got a story yeah because by telling the conflict and how the conflict gets resolved even if it's like a one Mm -hmm. like a up and then down (laughs) right then you've got yourself a story do you have something that can reveal meaning (laughs) To, to somebody else, whether or not it's like a good story is debatable, but you've got the structure of story. And now I'm going to lean on a couple books that were in that, that class of Story Proof and then there's uh, Wired for Story by Lisa Cron. Between these two, they, they both address this idea that human beings think in stories, like that's just how we process data. Like you were telling me the story of your dream earlier today. Right. We're not going to rehash it, but uh, just the fact that like our brains like just process the random events of our days and our weeks in a narrative linear format, even when it's just randomly processing information, tells us something about ourselves. And we're just always taking in so much information. But the way our brains present it to us is in the form of a linear timeline that draws attention to the who, the what, the when, and a why. Right. I, I think about another conversation that we had yesterday where I was frustrated about something that had happened, an interaction with a stranger um, that frustrated me and the way that I was able to like process and rationalize the situation was putting the other person involved into her own story. Like, Maybe she had a bad day. Maybe Mm. this and this and this was going on because otherwise it's like detached, lacking empathy. But in order to understand it without even really trying to, I kind of automatically put it into a different context. Um, And that helped me kind of make sense of what had happened. Mm -hmm. So when we when we say story in that context, like that, we think in story. I would say that that's it's almost like a template for processing data uh, is putting it in story form. And that's not necessarily what we're talking about when we say we're going to go to the movies and like watch a movie or read a book in like and, and expose ourselves to story in that form. But like we have the template in our brains for processing those sorts of stories. So it may be helpful to create a distinction between that baseline like human beings think in story as far as it's it's a linear timeline with a main subject and then a conflict 
and then some sort of a resolution that we get out of that conflict. That's the template that we all work off of. But the story that we're talking about is like the art form of right an intentional creating mm-hmm. in order to make meaning. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. To make meaning known or to right. expose right the phenomenon of meaning in our world. So with that definition, then we can start to dive into the art of storytelling and what storytelling as an art consists of. And then depending on who you ask, uh, there are many different elements that a story has to have. Otherwise it's not a story. I'm not going to dive into all of them because some are more helpful than others, but we're, we're digging down. We're trying to get to dialogue. All right. Uh, I think it's helpful to look at what a worldview is and how worldviews in fiction interact with each other and how those are for many, many, many stories. They're a vital element to how the story functions. could have a little thought experiment to see like if you took this out would it still be a story but that's not what we're gonna do with our time right now so a worldview is like i said everyone thinks in stories so a worldview is a story of the world that everyone has and that story has to like answer the questions of what's right with the world if anything what's wrong with the world if anything uh and what are the highest values of the world And how we tell ourselves a story that answers those things is our worldview. And a lot of times we have a a few different answers to those questions and a few different stories about those things that are kind of just in the back of our minds that never really get examined too closely. They're formed by our experiences. Sometimes they're formed by the stories that we interact with and the other stories of, of people that we hear. And we uh, put ourselves into those stories. So that forms our worldview. That forms how we interpret the things that happen to us. And how we interpret, like, if we have new information that comes into our sphere of influence, then it's like, oh, where do we put that in the story? And so the art of storytelling is many times concerned with playing out those worldviews uh, sometimes those t- those conflicting worldviews and putting those worldviews into the minds of characters. And then when you have a character that represents a certain worldview, you get to see how that worldview changes. If it's the main character, you get to see how that worldview interacts or conflicts with another worldview that you've personified as a character. 
and you get to see how that all works out on a like a playing field and so what do i say something like that it sounds like i'm just talking about like a parable or just talking about some sort of yeah like a, a, a thought experiment philosophical exercise but there can be so much nuance in playing out worldviews uh, against each other and that's possible because we as humans have sometimes and authors especially people that become like writers or you know professional storytellers have this capacity to hold several worldviews in their heads at the same time and then instead of just functioning like that they turn around and look in their own heads to like really examine right <laughs> how all these things are playing out and watching those things inside of a writer play out on the page within the context of a story can lead to like the greatest stories that we have as a society do you have an example of that or of like a set of characters with opposing worldviews that you enjoy in particular like a specific book or author who does that really well I mean, I think uh, I think all stories and authors are doing that on some level. But is there something like specifically that you have in mind? You have uh, let's keep it to one example. Yeah. (laughs) There are types of stories that are really good for illustrating sort of what I'm talking about, where you have two characters that the author kind of almost treats like main characters. One might be the antagonist and one might be the protagonist, but they are given a lot of attention to both of these and then they are on two distinct sides and they clash. So what comes to mind right off the bat is like what Stanley did with his X-Men series by creating like professor X and a Magneto sort of situation. And he, he was inspired by the real life conflict of Martin Luther King Jr. And Malcolm X. Okay. And how they were from a certain perspective, both on the same side, both looking for the same ends, but had Going wildly from, different perspectives on the yeah. means. And good example. Thank you. I don't actually know that much about X-Men, which I feel like you're going to want to remedy. Now that yeah, I've said that. Uh, just uh, a little bit. I, I'll, yeah. I'll give, I'll try to give you the cliff notes of this conflict. <laughs> no, that's good. Just, just to let you know. So you've got Magneto when he was a child, he was in like, Uh, concentration camps in nazi germany and that's like where his parents died and so he still got his like tattoos from his time in nazi concentration camps and so he grows up knowing of persecution and persecution from uh from a state and from a society just growing up from a young age uh, without even the idea of like being genetically different. Like he, he was under genetic persecution without even the idea of mutant. And then you have the background of professor X who he, he grew up to be an academic. Uh, he was like a, I mean, he's a professor of psychology, I guess uh, he could read people's minds. So it made it pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good career path. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And then, so that when the story finds them, they are, you know, 50, 60 year old men in the middle of this civil rights movement where you've got people who have these genetic mutations that give them superpowers, but they are in society seen as less than 
it's a it's a classic civil rights movement that gives you the excuse to like do superpower stuff but it's more of a civil rights story and then you have these two men who want the same ends but see completely different means to get to those ends but you also understand what shaped the worldview of these men that's really what drives the story and helps the audience understand yeah that, what's going that on. like magneto is not just like this guy who's just like a villain he uh i mean at worst you could call him a terrorist in the way he goes about uh pursuing his ends but you never see him as someone you can't relate to and of course like it wasn't just stanley writing like he had to give up the reins because this is ongoing comic series and stories work the best when they end i am very much of the opinion that stories work the best when they have a defined end point and with comics you're almost never going to get that so i feel like that almost minimizes the impact that the story can have but yeah i mean that's that's an example for you of of an author letting two worldviews play out through different characters yeah and, and through story i'm on the run i've got no alibi for what i've done took what you treasure and i'm never gonna give it up i left these empty streets and hide within the shadows you think i'm low but you don't know no no how low i'll go i've been hunting for it i've been planning for it i'm the villain yeah i'm gonna take it take it i've been hunting for it i've been planning for it i'm the villain yeah i'm gonna take it take it So I have written here that stories exist because questions exist and questions exist because the belief that answers exist and then stories are compelling because the belief in answers is compelling. Yeah. All right. So when, when we have the art of storytelling, it's like, it doesn't have to be a fully formed worldview that you have playing out and like f- fully formed worldviews that are like clashing and creating this conflict it can just be a question and a question can lead to an entire worldview because like I said, like a worldview by my definition is something that answers these questions of like what's right with the world, what's wrong with the world, where are the highest values in the world. And so if you have a question related to those sorts of things that needs an answer, well then you have a, a worldview that you need to have tested against something else. Yeah. So there are many definitions of what makes a story, what makes a good story. But one of the authors that uh, he wrote like this how to book, he's a great screenwriter and professor. John Trubing wrote this book on the anatomy of a story. And he's got like 27 steps. All right. He's writing (laughs) to screenwriters, but he breaks down like so many different steps He's just seen so many mediocre stories and and then he's seen some great stories. And so he wrote the book with an idea for like, how do you get to a great story? Yeah. 
many of his steps are helpful. Sometimes he'll like frame things in a way that seems like he's talking like pretty black and white, but then he's got a, a long list of exceptions. Okay. And he's speaking in generalities. Yeah. Just sometimes he's, he sounds empirical, but right. you don't have to take it like that if it's not helpful. His first chapter, or maybe it's the second one, early on in the book, he talks about before you even sit down to write your story, write something that will change your life. And like, that's the bar that you should have. It doesn't have to like change your life like drastically. Fundamentally. But like for it to be compelling for an audience, you need to have a question you're trying to answer and something you're trying to work through. Right. And something that by writing this story, it will change your perspective, change your life. Because hopefully by doing that, the same thing will happen to your reader in some way. Yeah. This is me kind of reading into it, but like being a professor of screenwriting, he sees a lot of people looking to have careers in Hollywood, looking to have careers making just entertainment media. And when you talk about stories and the idea of entertainment, we can sometimes get the idea that stories are purely for entertainment. They're just like fuel for stimulating for a couple hours. And the world doesn't need that. (laughs) And that's not even what is at the core entertaining for people. Like you can watch America's Funniest Home Videos or that's such an old reference. Uh, You can watch some TikToks (laughs) if you you just want to see like something that's like immediately gratifying, gratifying, which that's fun Mm -hmm. and can be useful sometimes and enjoyable. But that's not what we think of when we think of stuff that is entertaining stays with us right and something can be entertaining and also like engaging right and something can be entertaining and not engaging and so we're looking to be on the side of engaging and engaging in a way that uses aesthetics to show intentionally the phenomenon of meaning so yeah that's i feel like a great benchmark that i've used when sitting down to write something even if even no one else is going to see it like something that's worth writing about i guess growing up i had this idea of uh cool and like what i guess aesthetically interesting to me without necessarily being aesthetically engaging and trying to not use what i think is cool as a benchmark of like what to write about like oh wouldn't it be cool to write about this yes yeah and think more like questions am i trying to answer what am i struggling with like what what are what are the people in my head that one sees this one way and then there's another part of me that sees something a completely different way and one of these needs to win or at least i need to parse out like what's happening here and and watch that play out and then i can pick which genre or which setting is most interesting for me to explore those different conflicts yeah, that, that's a very helpful framework to start from, mm. for sure. Conflict occurs in the friction between different answers for the same question. And that needs... Makes sense. Yep. <laughs> needs resolution. Yeah. And so that's like, it's an engine that drives a story. Like, if you have a compelling question, then it almost necessitates the search for that answer. And then the search for that answer is something that is like you know 80 percent of your story right there and then you just have to figure out the details (laughs) yeah but i mean the engine is already there for creating your story 
it's like it's like gravity you, you throw something up with a question and it has to come down with a maybe not an answer but at least a response right the second bullet all right dialogue is mini story and uh this is coming from john truby's book his chapter on dialogue he talks about dialogue he calls it symphonic dialogue okay like a, a symphony of dialogue where you have dialogue playing out the central conflict of your story in three different levels like plot themes so actually dialogue that's pushing your plot forward or at least commenting on the plot itself or the themes within the plot and your plot is driven uh, this again he he has like, tw- like 27 steps and <laughs> and then kind of mini steps in uh-huh. between there so a lot of the terms he has by the time you get to this chapter which is like near the end of the book when he says that dialogue is mini story he means dialogue contains all of these steps playing out all right. So we're kind of skipping over and synthesizing some of that yeah, stuff. That's okay. But basically the plot, he says, is the engine of desire and obstacles hindering desires. That's what drives your plot. You don't have a plot if someone doesn't want something. Right. And if someone wants something and there's something in the way of someone getting that thing, whether it's themselves, whether it's another character, whether it's just circumstances, then the plot happens. Yeah. So you have that engine of desire and obstacles is your plot themes and so when you have dialogue that's playing out the central conflict of your story which is conflicting desires and he calls that your melody that you're playing when you have dialogue but your dialogue is also working on another level and that's uh, with your moral themes and so that's how your perspectives and your worldviews are expressed through a moral structure and that's like a harmony and usually that goes with like the desires and the obstacles and the conflicting desires you have a desire but then on another level you have a way that you see the world that makes you want that desire that makes you have that desire in the first place and if you have conflicting desires then you have two conflicting worldviews even if they're very similar like there's a pivot at some point Otherwise, there wouldn't be conflicting desires. And then on third level, you've got icon themes. And those are like keywords and key phrases that you use. And they're like in the symphony, they're like accents, like someone playing a triangle or symbols. It's like adds a splash 
to hit the same thing over and over right. again. So would that be like something specific that uh, a particular character like says or comes back to? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. 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 So he uses okay. a lot of examples. Uh, I think he uses the example of like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid where like the first time they're like robbing a train and they see the group of lawmen who are trying to catch them and bring them to justice. They say like, who are those guys? Because they don't know who they are. Yeah. And then that, that line, like who are those guys comes up again because they never find out who the heck is these guys are (laughs) who are following them. Mm. But that, that question of just gathers more and more meaning as the movie goes on, even though it's a light sort of a, like a light film. And the first time you hear those lines, it's like, or it's every funny. time you hear yeah. those lines, it's, it's like funny and tension breaking. But it also builds because you're getting more context and more understanding of yeah. what's kind of behind those words. And the central themes of the whole movie is about how these guys don't know that the world is going to pass them by, like that the time of like Western outlaws is over and that a new system is going to take them down. And the movie has to end with them dying like it's an an inevitable thing but the whole time they don't know that they're headed towards that inevitable thing so the the fact that they're confused about like not knowing who are these people that are following them layers that theme so that was a good example that he he used in there but you see in like in like japanese theater it's pretty explicit like with them using like triangles or gongs, it's like a signal like, where, oh, you need to pay attention <laughs> to that. And they'll actually like you hear a ding and there's a symphony along with <laughs> with that. So um, it's not hard to imagine, like because of the different art forms that we have, the combination of music and story is a whole nother topic, but they're not incompatible things like the way we process them are very similar we put music into its own sort of a story. That's why you can listen to a, a whole symphony and be like, oh, that sounds joyful. <laughs> like you listen to like Ode to Joy or you listen to like Rites of Spring or uh, or you can have like different musical pieces represent different seasons and you understand that does make me feel cold <laughs> or that does make me imagine like a flower coming out of the ground. So it's really awesome to use that power in combination with story that framework is a tool for storytellers to use pacing is a very important part of storytelling and pacing is a very important part of music making and like that's part of the aesthetics that we use to tell us if something is good or not or tell us if something like resonates with us or not
thinking? It's making sense. Yeah, it is. Let's get to the final one where Sounds we have good. character is dialogue. Hmm. Um, and this comes from my good friend and mentor. Just kidding. I don't know him personally. <laughs> Neil Gaiman uh, is a great author. Has a delicious British voice. I love it. I don't like you using that word. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, you like him. <laughs> he talks about character is, he says the character is dialogue, meaning that your character is not just like their backstory. Right. It's their speech patterns, their tone, and their worldview are mm-hmm. the building blocks of a written character. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the only ways you can, not one of the only ways, but probably the most effective way to catch a character in the moment, hmm. even if it's like you're recounting something that happened in the past. Yeah. You have to focus on what was happening in that moment with the character mm-hmm. if they're speaking. And that's really where you get at the core of who that person is. And yeah. um, you kind of see them in real time, figuring things out and processing the world. Two people can do the same action, but two people can't talk about this, the action in the same way. Yeah. They're different people. It's going to be different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, two people can have almost the exact same backstory. Like, you know, brothers, for example, in fiction, they can have the same backstory. Like they grew up with the same background, even if they were so twins in yeah. fiction is another common trope. So like mm-hmm. these people grew up the same, but they can have very different worldviews. Yeah. And, and that's going to really... lead to different characters and yeah. different speech patterns. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it can sometimes be very useful to get a voice in your head and sometimes it's like we talked about the idea for starting a story can be rooted in you just have a question that you're trying to answer or maybe a couple questions or a couple different answers for the same question that you don't know which one to go with if you take those questions and those answers put them into the mouths of other people and try to think what voices are coming out and how they express that and dig around in your head and try to find those little pieces of yourself that are at conflict and then make those pieces of yourself into characters. Then you can never run out of things for them to say because right. they're coming from they you. Yeah. Yeah. It just adds that like layer of like attachment to mm. these characters and it keeps your characters from being what, what people call like one dimensional or yeah. two dimensional type character. Yeah. Flat characters your characters will be part of you. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting thinking about how this whole conversation kind of culminates talking about character and dialogue. Cause I feel like, I mean, there are lots of things that make up a story, but if you have those two things, character and dialogue, that's not all that a story is, but mm-hmm. you can make an entire story just using those two tools. Yeah. Because dialogue is mini story and it right. can contain all of those other things that make up story, which is, the conflict and resolution that you're looking for and the change. Exactly. So I'm reading a really great novel right now um, called Daisy Jones and the Six. And I think it came out, I don't know, within the last 10 years, probably, Mm -hmm. but it was recommended to me by multiple people. And um, it's a, it's a fictional story about this band, Daisy Jones and the Six. And it's set in the seventies. Like this is kind of an aside, but reading it, I mean, I, I had to Google whether these people were real or not because it's set up in in like an interview style and it talks about like every other element of the story about like 
California in the 70s on like the indie rock and roll scene like that's all very real and then you have these characters come in and you you feel like you're reading about a band that actually existed um but the entire book is just all dialogue it's all interviews with all the different band members and the producers and friends and wives and husbands of the band members and it's crazy to me that there's no description there's no detail not no part of the story no word in the story is outside of the dialogue um that's happening with the people being interviewed or like the what you're supposed to believe is the direct quotes that the author whatever has gathered which is just fascinating because that is not usually how i think of storytelling i think of it as like you give all the details and then you put dialogue in um i mean i I respect dialogue more than that, but it's like dialogue goes hand in hand with the rest of the story when really you can include, you can create an entire story using just the words of other people and it can work just as well. Yeah. It just contains so much subtext and meaning like what we talked about in the very first episode, all the things that go into dialogue, like all the the things that go into the process of putting abstract thoughts into vessels of meaning that we call words and symbols and behavior like everyone has their own unique way of doing that and there are kind of endless possibilities for characterization and storytelling because i mean yeah every single person you've ever known has a different way of talking about things and saying things and if you take that and apply it to a story that you're telling there's a lot there's a lot to work with (laughs) um and a lot of options to choose from uh, another thing that Gaiman says in his master class, he talks about how he, he spent years as a journalist. So like interviewing people, getting hours of interview content. That's like you know, 10,000 words worth of content and then having to put that into a 2000 word like article and having so much, so many direct quotes. And how do you make someone sound like themselves? while not saying anything that they said word for word, which is something we, we touched on um, in the other episode about nonfiction dialogue, but they, they really go hand in hand. The process of compression and of finding the core elements of someone's speech pattern and the way that someone thinks and how to express how someone thinks in you know written form because people don't use semicolons or commas and people leave words hanging. Yeah. How to interpret the pauses in someone's speech and then turn that into words. Right. Where you're making something that's implicit, explicit. Mm. It's an art. Yeah. It's a practice that we are more practiced at than we think because we summarize stuff all the time. People's we words. Have yeah. Long conversations with people and then we tell someone else about that conversation and then or we do an impression of somebody and then we, we compress and we summarize and we, we take the essence of that person and put it into words. And so, it's just a matter of taking those words and that compression and putting it down in written form. Um, I feel like that's the trick where you really have to keep that essence there and figure out how to do that. Well, mm-hmm. um, try to be faithful. Yeah. And so that's, that's the, the, the process of nonfiction It's like you're, you're dealing with a real person and you're trying to, take the essence of a real person and put it into some you know, 26 letters and 
with fiction, you have a little bit more freedom. It's almost the reverse process of reverse engineering a living, breathing person out of just the 26 letters. It's like rather than capturing or like holding on to the essence in nonfiction, you have to discover and like uh, parse out the essence mm-hmm. as you write fiction. Yeah. Um, and f- figure out what the person is going to say as they're saying it and how that informs their character as a whole. A lot of authors talk about listening to their characters and it seems like there's a through line with a lot of writers is this idea of having multiple worldviews, multiple questions, multiple answers for different questions or multiple answers for the same questions in their heads, having different voices and having to go find the, the part of yourself. That's where you keep the idea of what it means to be a female in your head you go, or, or a male in your head, like go find that part of yourself so you can write. If you're writing a character that is doing terrible things in the world, because you have to show that part of your worldview of what's wrong with the world. And so you have to go and find the part of you that exemplifies personifies what you see as wrong in the world. You have to go find that inside of you and then turn that into a character. Otherwise you can, you can create a caricature. You can create like a straw man sort of thing, but it won't feel real. It won't be as impactful as finding something within yourself. I think that's something that I struggle with in fiction is it's hard for me to not feel like, all of my characters are a direct representation of me, like who I am, because you are pulling it from some part of you. Um, but you have to be willing to take that part and kind of separate it and really, really expand on something that's in you. Even, you know, your character becomes something that you totally are not, but you have to be okay with it starting from some part of a worldview that you have tucked away somewhere and then kind of run with it and be okay with However, that turns out controlled insanity mm-hmm. <laughs> is the process of writing. Yeah. Wondering thoughts we threw my mind like pulling leaves from the vine. Love me so or love me not I'm afraid that these thoughts will not stop have some thoughts on pacing okay i'm a big movie person like i really like movies and television shows and all the things that we talked about like dialogue is just one piece of mini story there's of course like silent films or even whole sequences of films and sequences of literature with, with containing no characters talking to each other right and yet they convey a ton of story so mm-hmm. description in written literature 
and cinematography and the language of showing different images is another way to use applied aesthetics. Yeah. And that's a whole other field that we don't have time to dive (laughs) into right now. But I think pacing in dialogue is another element that I've, I've become more and more aware of pacing in watching movies or in reading like how long sentences are. Yeah. And then go a really short sentence and then like breaking things up. So another thing in anatomy of story, uh, Truby talks about the different units of measurement of time for stories. He, he tries to debunk the idea of like a three act structure. Okay. He gets so many screen plays. They're like broken up into a three act structure where people just think they have to start a story here and then they have a really good idea and like all the stuff happens in the here. middle. Yeah. And then act three is kind of like, mm, he's here. So many like producers talking about like, Oh, there's problems in act three of the three act structure. And he's like, it's an outdated form format. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. So he gives a lot more helpful definitions of the units of storytelling. So starting with the definition of an act. It's like at the end of an act is when your main character makes a choice that they can't come back from. And that choice will flavor and define the next act. Okay. And some stories are one act story. Just broken up into three parts. Not even broken up into three parts. Just it's a, it's the whole thing. It's just one act. Oh, I thought I thought you were saying like some badly written stories are just one act, which I think some. Yeah, yeah, some good stories are just one act. Right. Where the 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 change that the character goes through at the end or the self revelation that the character finds at the end is their change. And the other acts of their story are unwritten. That's just the end of the story. Yeah. And some are two acts where the character makes a change here or figure something out and makes a choice so the acts are defined by like choices that a character makes and so they make a choice that they can't come back from and then the second act happens and that's the whole thing yeah is the character making this choice in the middle um and then some giant epic things (laughs) are have multiple acts right so that is a much more helpful definition Mm -hmm. i think than just because you don't have to like have something that's three acts you have to and if you're thinking that you want to do three acts and you Mm -hmm. want to be like oh i want to do these pivot points and it's mostly driven by the plot but your main character never makes a choice that they can't come back from then that there's not a real checkpoint right for your story like the it's just different flavors of the plot happening to the character so those changes really are key Yeah. yeah if you're wanting to make a pivot you, then you, you have to pivot. <laughs> make a pivot with your main character. Right. Um, so that's just helpful in general. Acts, even if it's a one act thing, acts are broken up into scenes. And scenes are not just like if you're filming something, it's not just when you have to reset the camera and like go into another yeah. place. Or even if you you know do a scene change and you're, you're in an entirely different place with different characters, a scene is... When uh, a character doesn't have to be your main character, but when your character starts out in one emotional state 
of being and ends at another emotional state of being. And the scene is how they that get from state. point A to point yes. B. So that can happen for a long, it can be a conversation where it's like following two people walking and they go into a building and then they have to like react to something else. And like that changes the emotion or throughout the course of the conversation, they're uh, expressing one opinion, like trying to vent. And then you get to the end of the conversation and that person is either madder than they were at the beginning or they have calmed down or, you know, their, their emotional state has changed. Um, or it can even be a silent thing of someone just like looking really mopey out a window and then like the phone rings and now their emotional state has changed. And uh, yeah, so that's that's the idea is a scene is someone's emotional state established and then changed. And then that new emotional state. Next time you have a scene with that person, you pick up from that last from that one and move to the yeah. next one. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and scenes are broken into sequences. And that's what people confuse sequences with scenes a lot. So you can have multiple sequences within a scene. Within a scene. So what is a sequence? Uh, a sequence is made up of beats. And a okay. beat is either an action or a reaction. Okay. And a sequence is and a, a sequence set of, is a set of actions, actions and, reactions. and reactions. And so animation is like one of the best ways to look at that. That's the, the, the language animators use like all the time because you have to every image you draw at almost every frame. Animators use the, the language of this sort of pacing when they're trying to pace out like, OK, we got 24 frames per second. A lot of times animators, if they're doing hand drawn, they'll draw in 12 frames per second because then you have less drawings per second of footage, uh, which means you have to do 12 drawings <laughs> per second of footage. And oh. so if you do try to do 24 frames, they're like, that's all. That's, that's a, a lot. lot. Yeah. Uh, usually like they'll go up to 24 frames for action scenes where something needs to look really smooth. But before that, they'll just do 12 frames. But every picture shows like, or every 12 pictures shows someone doing an action and then doing a reaction. And they try to stay within those beats. We get, you have to convey so much by what you draw, whether it's like a, a beat can be as small as a look yeah, or an expression, or it can be someone saying something or like a line of dialogue. So when you're writing, it's really helpful to use animator language when you're writing fiction because then you can you can really break everything down yeah yeah a line of dialogue that counts yeah as your action Mm. and then someone says a line back that's a reaction you take the time to explain an expression someone makes that's also a beat you take the time to explain the expression someone makes in reaction to someone else's expression right another another beat. beat yeah uh you just you pause to add a little th- look of description, almost like it's a it's a cutaway from the scene in a movie. That's another beat. Uh, the camera and the narrator can make beats too, because they they count as actions. So then you can kind of go into a scene and be like, what sort of pace, pace do I want to set want? Mm-hmm. on this scene? Do I want it to be like a long, like you treat it like it's a song? Like do I want it to be this long deliberate? Like we're doing quarter notes or we're doing big old whole notes. Yeah. And you, you kind of play it like, like a song. 
so yeah, and you have your sequences are just like little, uh, they're like phrases in music. So you can have your sequences paced differently. Like this sequence starts off slow and then we get into this other sequence where we start like moving things up kind of fast and it gets faster and faster and faster because the person's getting madder and madder. And so like you're going to get choppier and choppier with the way you're doing your actions and reactions. And then at the end, like when you get to the, the end point that their emotional state's going to be at, when you start their next scene, then that's when your scene ends. That's when the sequence ends and you start somewhere else. So cool. That's really helpful. I like it. And it's not like, it's not so formatted that like you feel restricted by it. It's like, Oh, now I just have definitions to work with. Yeah. More of a way to just kind of analyze and define what it is that you're actually writing. And yeah. Yeah. And you, you, you'll stop saying unhelpful things. Like I've got act three problems. (laughs) Or It's like, well, if you have a problem, if you truly have a problem with your act, then Look at your character's decision that they're making. Mm-hmm. If they're not making a decision, you don't really have an act. So you have to right. decide, do you so, want to make an act break here? Or do you yeah. want uh, to to not? And then you might not have a problem anymore. Yeah. Because the act isn't. And if it just if it feels like, okay, it's too boring here is what I mean. Right. Well, then like go in and increase the pacing of your actions and reactions. Or increase the interest of your actions and your right. reactions. Make them more jarring and mm. contrasting. Yeah. So. Very cool. That's a uh, it's a book I read. It's <laughs> actually it's a it's a it's a couple books. So Truby talked about the acts and the scenes, and then um, because I just love looking at animations and animators and how they think about things. Like they think in terms of beats, right? And so I I feel like it's a good definition to say sequences are made up of beats, scenes yeah. are made up of sequences acts are made up of scenes hmm. and uh got it all broken broken yep, those, down. those are all the units yep. i like all of the musical what's the word i'm looking for nomenclature terminology yeah i was gonna <laughs> say like uh analogies yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that reused in this conversation mm-hmm. it's helpful yeah i feel like i understand a little bit more about I mean, I guess fiction as a whole and how to kind of pace the pacing conversation is very helpful for me. I don't write fiction Mm -hmm. like rarely ever, um, but it kind of makes me want to play with it a little bit more than I normally do. So, yeah, you should do that. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, this will conclude our dialogue series. It will. Try to do another one. Yeah. Which we reserve the right to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But for the time being. This concludes our dialogue series. Nice. Okay. All right. Bye. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. If you've made it through all four of these episodes in this series, congratulations. What an accomplishment. (laughs) Uh, We want to hear what you thought. So connect with us on Facebook uh, at Vivid Word Podcast or shoot us an email at vividwordmedia at gmail.com we want to make this content better for you because that's why we do this we make stuff for you so let us know what you thought if there's another place that we should be on social media let us know so come find us on facebook shoot us an email and then tell us to get on instagram or twitter or clubhouse clubhouse could be fun we'll go where you are okay um a couple things 
Since this is the end of this series, we are going to take a week break. We've got a few episodes already recorded, but we're going to spend some time really editing those up so we can make them the best they can be. We're also going to be doing some interviews. Our next series is going to be on books. And while we've had some experience editing and we're going to definitely share those experiences, we also want to hear from professionals who have published works. So if you know anybody like that who would be great to talk to, send us an email, point them out to us. Uh, We've already got a few people lined up and we can't wait to introduce these fine authors to you guys. Vivid Word Media is a media publishing service helping you get your ideas read, seen, and heard. You can check us out at vividwordmedia.com where you can also find blog posts and show notes and other episodes of this podcast and other resources. Till next time. Just words. Well, they're just words.